This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. said happy sabbath it's not a happy sabbath it's a good sunday morning and i'm very happy to be here with you and haven't we been blessed at gyc this year i come from a land far far away i come from australia and i can't wait to go back home and take back a good report of all that we have been blessed with and that we've been fed with here at this conference session and it's my just great privilege now to be able to share with you a message that the lord has placed on my heart and I pray that as you hear this message, that it will not make you feel comfortable, but that you will leave this place discontent. Would you bow your heads with me as we open with a word of prayer? Loving Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for bringing us to this moment. We thank you, Lord, for the many blessings that you have given to us here this weekend. And Lord, as we study the Bible again together for the last time here, we invite your Holy Spirit to be present in our midst. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me, that you would speak through me to your people and you would give to us a message that we need to hear this morning. May Jesus be uplifted and may we be inspired to service is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a Sunday morning back home in Australia and I was upstairs in my bedroom when I heard a scream come from downstairs in our house, and it was my mom. So I rushed downstairs, and there was my mom and my dad, and they were trying to get the dishwasher out from in our, inside our kitchen. They were trying to pull the dishwasher out, and I said, what's the matter? And my mom said, there's a snake in the house. I said, really? How big is it? Well, it sounded pretty big from all the descriptions that I heard, and so dad got the, the uh, dishwasher out, and then we were all just trying to poke things underneath the cavity there in the kitchen, and we couldn't seem to find this snake beneath the cupboards. And I, as the longer and longer time went on, I began to wonder if there really was a snake in the house after all, because I thought maybe my parents were making it up. My sister had an ingenious idea. She decided to get a stick and she taped her uh, iPhone to it with the camera and she stuck it in the hole with a torch just to see if we could see if this snake was there and there was nothing that we could see there. And so that night we sat around in the kitchen and we were watching that cavity there as we were eating our dinner that night. And then when we decided to go to sleep, I recognized that the next day, Everybody else in my house was going to be going to work and I was going to be the only one home the next day. Well, the next day comes, everybody goes, and they apologize to me that they had to leave me at home with the snake. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, maybe there isn't even a snake. Maybe it was just a big lizard or something like that. Well, the phone rings, and I answered the phone. It was somebody from church, and they wanted to know something, so I answered their question. And I said, well, it's about lunchtime here. I'm going to go downstairs and have lunch with a snake. They said, really? And I explained the story, how I'd come downstairs when I heard my mom scream. And he started to tell me how in South America they have snakes so large they could eat people. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I was having all these mental pictures in my mind of these giant snakes. And I'm thinking, oh, great. Now I'm going to go downstairs and have lunch with one. So I come down the stairs. 
and I opened the doors because I closed everything because I didn't want the snake coming upstairs. And I'm looking around. I thought, okay, I can't see anything. Everything looked the way I left it. I thought, I'm just going to go check the family room, the rumpus room. So I went into the rumpus room, and I did something I don't usually do, and I don't recommend you do this, but I jumped onto the lounge. And when I jumped into the lounge, I looked on the other side of the lounge, and there was the snake looking at me. I screamed, it screamed, I ran, it ran, and I went straight back upstairs, shut my bedroom door, and I sat there. And I realized that there was a snake in my house, and I'm in my room, and it could go anywhere now in my house, and I wouldn't know where it went. So I came back downstairs, and instead of going to the rumpus room, I ran outside, and I'm looking at the snake inside my house from the outside. And I took my phone out, and the first person that I thought of calling was my dad, because my dad has always been my protector. He's always been there to keep me safe. My dad, though, works in the city maybe an hour away. But I called him anyway, and I said, Dad, I found the snake. He says, oh, good. I said, it's inside the house. It's here in the house. And he says, great, let it out. I said, Dad, I can't just go and let the snake out. And so he says, well, that's the only way you're going to get it out. So I thought, well, if Dad can't help me, I'll call my mom. My mom is a Bible worker for our church back home. And she was in the middle of a Bible study when she took my call. I said, Mom, I found the snake. She said, praise the Lord. She said, let me pray with you. <laughs> I said, no, I need you here. I need help. My sister was working, and so it was just me and the snake. And I figured, all right, I'm all alone here. It's just me, the snake, and the Lord. So I took our phone, our home phone, and I clipped it to my waist. I put gloves on. And I put, took a broom in my hand and a good can of Mortine. Do you know what Mortine is? No. In Australia, it's a bug spray. So I had a bug spray, a broom, gloves, and my phone. And I took the high chair from our kitchen, and I planted it there, and I watched the snake. It had gone behind the piano, and it stuck its head out on the other side, and it would come out like this, look at me. I would look at it, and I'd stand up, I'd get scared, go back behind the piano, and I'd just sit down again, waiting. That siege went on for two whole hours. I sat there watching it, it sat there watching me, until finally it went behind the piano and I thought, all right, I've got gloves on, this should be okay. So I ran over, opened the doors, ran back, sat there, and finally he slithered outside. And you know what? It was just a little green tree snake, so it wasn't even poisonous or anything like that. <laughs> but still, in my mind, it was a very courageous moment. And as I think of this incident, it reminds me, you know, it wasn't fun being in that siege moment, but I can tell you what, there was a much more serious siege that the Israelites had to endure. You see, for the Israelites, there was no way of escape. There was no glass door for them to let the enemy out of. Israel was outnumbered by one of the most powerful armies in the world. Flight was impossible. Fight was out of the question, and fright seemed to be the only option. The Syrian army had surrounded the city of Samaria, and they were going to stay there. They were prepared to continue their patient siege until either the Israelites surrendered or starved to death. And things were so bad. I want you to see it with me. Come back in time with me and your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 6. 
and we will begin our reading in verse 25, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 25, and we'll read through to 29. 2 Kings chapter 6, the Bible reads in verse 25, And there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dove droppings uh, for five shekels of silver. Then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? From the threshing floor or from the winepress? Then the king said to her, What is troubling you? And she answered, This woman said to me, Give me, give your son, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, Give your son, that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. So friends, the insanity and the horror of this famine under this siege was so great that mothers were boiling and eating their own children. Now, whenever I travel and I call home, my parents, my mom always asks me how things going and all of that. My dad, the first question he asks me is always the same. He wants to know what I'm eating. He says, what are you eating? My dad is from Samoa and it's an island in the South Pacific, and my mum is from Australia, so if I look mixed up, that's the reason why. And so food is very important to Samoans, so that's why Dad just wants to know what the food is. And so I have now taken into, everywhere I go, I make it a habit to photograph my food so that I can show him. But I'll tell you what, the food was not worth photographing back in Samaria. Things were so bad, and all the king could do about it, as he continued to read the passage, was that he would tear his clothes and weep as he walked along the walls of his doomed city. In Patriarch, Prophets and Kings, it says, page 258, Never had Israel been brought into so great a strait as during this siege. The sins of the fathers were indeed being visited upon the children and the children's children. Friends, Israel had forgotten two things. Number one, that she served a powerful God. And number two, that she needed to trust him. And don't ever think that the devil isn't trying to convince you to forget those two things as well, that you cannot trust God and that he is not powerful enough to help you. He knows that if he can succeed in starving us from the bread of life and from drinking from the fountain of living waters, that we too will turn to biting and, and to treating one another with contempt through gossip and criticism, selfishness and hate. If he can convince us to live off other people's sermons, whether they're on YouTube or Audioverse, if he can convince us to live off the spiritual food we might find in spiritual memes on Facebook or Instagram, he knows that we are on the sure road to eventually being starved to death because we are learning to lean on others instead of learning to lean on Jesus and his word. But friends, when hope seemed hopeless... God had a message of hope for his people, an announcement of hope for them, that even though they had turned their backs on him, the Holy Spirit, he comes upon the prophet Elisha, and Elisha gives a message to Jehoram the king, and the message is this, that within 24 hours, the famine would be over, 
and there would be enough food for everyone. Let's read what happens in uh, 2 Kings 7, verses 1 and 2. Then Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a seer of fine wheat shall be sold for a shekel, and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And he said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. You know what? They might get the announcement for the winner of Miss Universe wrong, but the God of the universe never makes mistakes when he makes announcements. Amen? By the way, when I do this, that means amen. So, friends, the officer of the king, though, when he hears this announcement from the prophet's lips, he finds it too hard to believe in the promise of God. He rejects the promise, and so the prophet says that because he rejects the promise, he would miss out on the promised blessing. Do not reject the promises of God. Trust in the promises of God. Because, watch this, while this is happening, just outside the city, there is an incredible story unfolding. And we continue to read in verse 3. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? Outside the city that is starving to death, outside those walls sits four men. And these men are not just miserable, they're not just wretched, they are hungry, and not only that, but they are diseased. The Bible tells us they are lepers. As my sister said to me, at least nobody wanted to eat them. That's probably the only good thing about their predicament right now. And they were so cut off from society, they've been removed from society, they're outside the walls. And you know what? Sometimes in these cultures, if, if a family member had leprosy, not only would they banish them from the city, but the families back home would even hold a funeral service for them. They were dead to them as far as their families were concerned. That's how cut off they were. These men were living off the garbage that was let down over the wall to them. But because there was no food in the city, you can imagine there hasn't been a lot of garbage that has been let down over the wall to them. And by the way, as a little side note, I used to think that leprosy was a disease that ate away at your limbs. Actually, what it does is it numbs your nerves so that you feel no pain at all, which is why you damage your extremities to the point where you can lose them or they get infected without notice because nothing hurts. So they have nothing. They're lepers. They're outside the city. They are dying not only of the corruption of their diseased flesh, but they are dying because they've eaten nothing for days. And it's within this context that one of them turns to the others and he says with bloodshot eyes, why are we sitting here until we die? It's one of the most profound questions in all the Bible. Why are we sitting here until we die? He was discontent to continue with the way things were. And so he goes on to suggest in verse 4, If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. If we sit here, we die also. Now therefore come, 
Let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall only die. They were in a catch-22 situation. If leprosy didn't get them, starvation surely would. And so they figured they'd take a chance on the Syrians. Maybe the Syrians would have compassion on them. But think about this for just a moment. If their own countrymen have banished them from the city, what on earth makes them think that the Syrians will have compassion on them? What would the Syrians do with four lepers? I don't know, but God has not forgotten about them. Keep reading, verse 5. And they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, and they fled for their lives." My sister, when she texts me on her phone, sometimes she's so excited about something or she's so busy trying to text me as quickly as she can, she forgets to correct the spelling on the autocorrect that comes through. And so my nickname, so my name is Sharissa, my nickname is Riss, but I get texts from her that say, hey, Ross, where are we going tonight? Or I get things from her that says, hey, Russ, I'm catching the bus, or something like this. One morning, I got a text from her and it said, Hey, Ross, I have something Amazon to tell you. I want to tell you we are at an Amazon moment here in Scripture. Friends, nothing is too hard for God. No situation is too hard for God. Can God help you? Yes, He can. No matter what you face, can God help you? Yes, He can. I work in the Adventist Media Center back home in Sydney. And some of, our, uh, some of my colleagues, they went overseas, they went to Novo Tempo in Brazil, and they came back with an amazing testimony that they heard there. They were told the story of a student there who was attending a university, and one of their exams fell on a Sabbath. So they had a choice. Do they sit the exam on Sabbath, or do they honor God? They chose to honor God, and the university would not let this student change the day of their exam. Well, this student prays guess what? Word gets out. A wealthy Adventist man buys the university and the student is able to sit their exam. So listen, it has to be a true story because it was told at the Adventist Media Center. But listen, if there's a sea, God can split it. If there's a furnace, God can cool it. And if there's a siege, God can break it with a soundtrack. A good one. That's what he did right here. Through an absolute miracle, there was now an abandoned abundance of food and, and things for an army of at least 100,000 men right outside the gates of a city that was starving to death and going to bed afraid every night. They had no idea what was just outside the walls. Verse 8, And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried some from there also and went and hid it. 
So friends, the curtain rises on a new scene. And in my mind's eye, I can see all four of them stealing softly into the Syrian camp at twilight. Perhaps as they come in, they are trembling. Their hands are already raised in ready surrender. Shh, softly. Your tread is loud enough to wake the dead. If they're sleeping, let's not wake them. Shh, come on, guys, keep it down. And as they come into the camp, one of them enters the first tent that they reach. Hands up. He looks in, and next thing the others hear is, guys, guys, come and see this. You've got to see There's nobody here. Really? Are you sure? Yeah, come in. Come and see. I haven't seen a table like this since Thanksgiving. And so all four of them enter into the tent, and sure enough, the tent is empty. And there on the table, right in front of them, is a warm meal. It's freshly prepared. And so they come. No one needed to, to suggest what needed to happen next. They eat that food. It is gone. And as they're eating, they look around the tent, and they see gold and silver and, oh, designer Syrian clothes all around them. And so they change their clothes and decide to bank the, their bounty beneath the nearest tree stump. On and on throughout the night, these four ravenous lepers, they go from tent to tent, hoarding and hiding all that they could carry. You and I cannot even begin to imagine the delirious joy that these lepers felt that night. They had more food than they could have wanted or eaten in a lifetime. They had gone from rags to riches in a single day, truly. God had opened the windows of heaven for them. And friends, isn't this what it's like when we find Jesus? Isn't this what it's like? Do you remember what it feels like, what it felt like when you first fell in love with Jesus? Because friends, these, these lepers, I believe, are a picture of us. Sin, all sin, is terminal. But friends, as soon as there was sin, there was a Savior. And when we come to Jesus, what do we find more than we could ever imagine? We find amazing grace, blessed assurance, showers of blessing, and a love that will not let us go. Amen? We find that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's what we find when we come to Jesus. But notice what happens next, verse 9. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. How many tents they had been through before this thought finally hits one of them, the Bible doesn't say. All we know is that as they are feasting in one of those tents, suddenly this new thought begins to dawn upon them. What are we doing? I mean, what we're doing right now is scarcely human. How can we sit here feasting and hoarding this wealth when a whole city filled with our family and our friends and our loved ones is but a stone's throw away and they're dying of starvation just there. The laughter ceases and silence descends on these four as they now chew upon this new realization. As they do, 
in silence the horror film of the hollow eyes and the hideous meals back in Samaria replays over in their minds. They remember how that very morning they had seen the king walking along the walls and weeping over their doomed city. And suddenly as they remember these things, their discovered contentment morphs into a strong feeling of discontent and they can eat no more. Interestingly enough, Josephus says that one, one of these four was Gehazi, the former servant of the prophet Elisha, who had received leprosy of Naaman, the Syrian commander, for being greedy. You continue to read in Jewish writings, and they go on further to say that the other three who were with him were most probably his three sons. And if this is the case, then Gehazi was probably the first one who came to the realization that they now come to. The Hebrew might be translated this way. This is a day of good tidings and we hold our peace. That is a sin. In the Middle East, they say if you know where the water is and you don't tell somebody about it, you don't tell people where the water is, they call that the sin of the desert. And so we read verse 10 and 11. So they went and called to the gatekeepers of the city, and told them, saying, We went to the Syrian camp, and surprisingly no one was there. Not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied, and the tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out, and they told it to the king's household inside. Friends, I think this is the, one of the finest illustrations of what it means to share Jesus with others that we find in all the Bible. Because, friends, true evangelism is just one beggar telling other beggars about where they found bread. These four lepers told the gatekeepers, and the gatekeepers told the king's household, and before you know it, the news of this good news has spread right throughout the city of Samaria. They were the most unlikely people to rescue a city, but God often uses the most unlikely people. And that means that God can use you and I as well. Well, friends, I want you to know that today is a day of good news. I don't know if you watch much of the news or read it in the newspapers, but I have watched some news and I have read some of the papers. And every time I watch the news or see the papers, I am appalled at what I see there. I think, oh, I've seen the worst headline, but nope, there's always one that's much worse than that. And I want to tell you that today, the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ is still the best news that there is. And in Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus said that before he could come back, before he could come back, this gospel of the kingdom was to be preached in all the world, and then the end would come. And there is one other place in the Bible where we find a gospel that must go to all the world before Jesus comes back. It's in Revelation chapter 14. There we find three angels' messages. And the angels have, the first angel, he has the everlasting gospel, which is to be preached in all the world. And as we continue to read this message, we discover that one of the reasons why the, the spreading of this message is so urgent is because there is another city at the end of time in a very serious condition. Like Samaria of old who had turned her back on God, Babylon is fallen and things are so bad that are going on inside of her that the there are abominations in the sight of God. Let me read to you this quote. Testimonies, volume 9, page 19. In a special sense, 
Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. There is no other warning after this. To them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. On them is shining wonderful light from the Word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, second, and third angel's messages. There is no other work of so great importance. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. Now let me ask you something. If these lepers felt it to be their solemn, sacred duty to announce deliverance to a perishing city, how much more should we feel it our solemn, sacred duty to share the everlasting gospel with a perishing world? I want you to imagine something. This is a hypothetical, or as my friend Sonia says, a hypothermical situation. I want you to imagine that this country, the United States of America, was experiencing a severe famine. And we heard about it back in Australia. And we had compassion. We had compassion. So we put together a fleet of ships and we weighted them with life-sustaining supplies to send help to the United States of America, to help the people here. And so we sent that fleet off with prayers and well wishes. But along the way, as our fleet is heading for your country, they passed Hawaii and they decided to stop. And they stopped in Hawaii and they liked the beaches there. In fact, there were some good prospects for business there and so they started to trade there. And all the while, the thought of the dying and the perishing in this country was pushed out of their minds. You know what? If that happened today, you and I would look at that and we would say that such an action was inhuman. I actually just paraphrased, I put it in my own words, an illustration that Ellen White uses in her writings. And at the end of her illustration, she says this, Christians are daily repeating this sin. Testimonies, volume 8, page 25. Can I read to you another quote? Christ's Object Lessons, page 303, multitudes are perishing. The destiny of a world hangs in the balance, but this hardly moves the people, hardly moves those who claim to believe the most far-reaching truth ever given to mortals. There is a stupor, a paralysis upon the people of God, which prevents them from understanding the duty of the hour. Again, the Review and Herald, Review and Sabbath Herald, uh, my brother, my sister, is it nothing to you to know that every day souls are going down into the grave unwarned and unsaved, ignorant of their need of eternal life and of the atonement made for them by the Savior? These are very strong quotes. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, one of the greatest preachers I think the world has ever seen, he loved Jesus so much. I love that when I was reading a biography on his life, the uh, biographer wrote of how one night while Spurgeon was asleep, he broke out into a sermon about Jesus in his sleep. His wife woke up, took notes, handed them to him the next morning, and he went down to the tabernacle and preached it. That's how consumed Spurgeon's heart was with Jesus. He loved the Lord. But you know what? That love for the Lord always causes us to love people as well. And he loved people. Listen to what he said. 
This is, this is good Spurgeon English. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. There was a family and they were traveling home after a family holiday. And as they were driving along the road, they were enjoying, you know, talking in the car, and they had a little eight-year-old boy, and he's sitting in the back seat, and he's talking away to his mom and dad in the front seat. They came over a hill, and as they came over a hill, uh, another car coming around the corner was flying at top speed, and, and it ended up veering into oncoming traffic. And as that car comes around, it veers into oncoming traffic. Next thing you know, there's this terrible accident, and cars and bodies are going places, and several cars stopped, but this family, they saw it, they were shocked, and they just kept driving. That night, as they are going to go to sleep, the father puts his son into his bed, and the son had not spoken much ever since he saw what he saw that afternoon. And he says to his son, he says, son, try to sleep. And the little boy was silent. And finally, he broke out into tears, and he said, Daddy, how can we sleep when people die? My friends, every day, thousands are dying without any knowledge of Jesus Christ or the salvation that he gave to purchase them. He's the salvation he purchased for them by giving his life. According to the Adventist Frontier Missions website, I got this, this is fresh, there are 7,000 unreached people groups representing more than 2 billion people in our world today. 86% of these unreached people groups live in the 1040 window, which stretches across northeastern Africa and across southern Asia as well. Not only that, but even in our own backyard, there are people here who have never heard the gospel. Most people never attend church because no one has ever invited them. But Jesus' instruction to you and I has been very clear. If he himself was here to give this charge this morning, he would be telling us to go therefore into all the world and teach them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He would be charging us to go and share the gospel. So my friends, how can we sit here how can we just come to conference after conference and just sit here and be satisfied like this? Paul could not be satisfied with sitting around and doing nothing. In 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 16, he says, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. He was committed to the gospel of Christ. Too many of us are like this man who, went, who professed conversion and he was talking with his minister. And the minister said to him, have you joined the church? Have you joined the church? And the man said, no, I'm a converted man and I don't need to join the church because the dying thief, he never joined the church. Well, do you talk to your neighbors about Jesus? No, the dying thief, he never talked to his neighbors about Jesus. I don't think I have to. Well, do you support missions in any way? Do you give to missions? The man looked at his pastor and said, pastor, the dying thief never gave to missions and he was promised eternal life. Well, said the minister, my friend, the difference between the two of you is that he was a dying thief and you are a living one. Sometimes I wonder if maybe God had told us the gospel was a secret 
Maybe it would have spread more quickly because we all want to tell everybody about it. Friends, the world needs to know that there is a fountain filled with blood and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. People need to know the gospel. Everybody deserves to know about Jesus. How can we sit here and do nothing? I don't know. Oh, I probably came from America. Popeye? You familiar with Popeye? Okay. We have that in Australia too. Well, some of you might have grown up watching a bit of Popeye, the sailor man. And you will remember that Popeye, he has a girl in his life. It's Olive. And every time Olive is in trouble, Popeye's usually calm demeanor changes. He gets so worked up, and if, if she is in danger, if something could potentially harm Olive, he explodes, and he shouts, I, that's all I can stand. I can't stand it no more. Then he pops a can of spinach, downs it, and off he goes and saves Olive from whatever could happen to her. You know what? I think we need to have a Popeye moment as a church. We cannot be content to let this go on like this. Do you think that God is content to let the world perish around us like this? No. How can we be content when God is not content? The divine discontent that is in the heart of God ought to stir us. It ought to touch us. It ought to move us as well. Oh, amen. Friends, Calvary happened because the heart of God could not be content until a way of salvation had been made for you and I. The Godhead was rent asunder because God could not bear the thought of an eternity without you. The Bible tells us in Romans 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have got to lay our lives down for the purposes of God. This is not a Sabbath picnic. It's not an eternal potluck. This is an invitation to challenges. It's not an invitation to continuously good and happy times. Friends, we are at war. Lives, eternal destinies are at stake. After the terrible events of September 11, a pastor in your country, he said these words in a passionate sermon. He said, my mind is forever branded with the story that I heard of police officers from the city of New York. As people were fleeing from a crumbling building, there were police officers and firemen and others running toward the building saying, run for your life at their own peril. And in some cases, he said, I believe they knew they were going to die, but there was a sense of duty. Oh, that our own sense of duty would not be less for God's kingdom than that of the police officers and firemen who they had for those who were perishing in a burning, falling tower. Time, I believe, is running out. The clock of prophecy is ticking. I think we would be stunned speechless if we knew how much time we really have left. The situation is serious. It's the saints who are not. Friends, Testimonies, Volume 8, page 28, says Christ gave himself for sinners. When we truly know when we truly understand and 
meditate on how God bankrupted heaven for you and for me when we truly know the love of God for us, then we too will get this. We will have this burning divine discontentment in our hearts for the salvation of the world around us, and it will consume us. We'll think about it all day. We will toss and turn over it at night because it grips us. It will kick and scream inside of us until we will say, I can't stand this no more. Lord, please send me, show me how I can reach out to the perishing world around me and take the gospel to them. Our theme verse for this whole weekend has been from Revelation chapter 17 and verse 14. If you want to read it with me, please go there. Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. Revelation 17, verse 14. We probably should have this memorized by now. It says, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. Friends, those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Every heart with Jesus, every heart that has Jesus living inside of it is a missionary. And every heart without Jesus is a mission field. When we have a relationship with Jesus, when we have this relationship with the Lamb, his mission becomes our mission we too will want to be about our Father's business as well. Amen? Dwight Moody, an amazing, wonderful soul winner, he once made a vow never to let a day go by without witnessing to at least one person. One night, he was going to go to sleep. It was 10 p.m. at night, and then he realized something. He hadn't shared Jesus with anybody that day. So he put his coat on, walked outside, and the first man he found standing underneath a, light, a lamp post or a light post, he said, excuse me, friend, do you know Jesus Christ? That man broke out into a rage. Who do you think you are? Where do you come from? He found himself, that man went and found the elder of the church and he complained about what Moody was doing and how he had accosted him on the street. And the elder pleaded with Moody, please stop what you are doing. Try and do things differently. Well, Moody didn't change. He continued to do this. And you know what? Three, three months passed, and the man eventually came to Moody's home and apologized. And when he apologized, he told him how that, that question that Moody had asked him, it had set his mind thinking and asking questions. God had led him on a journey, and Moody was able to lead that man in a prayer of surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Moody was an uncultured untrained shoe salesman. He was not ordained. And yet God used him to lead thousands of people to faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, estimates vary, but it is thought that he has, he is, he has led, as, he led sorry, as many as a million people to profess faith in Jesus Christ. If God can use Moody, God can use us as well. We should do that as well. It takes courage to share Jesus today, and it took courage to share, to share the good news with a city that was already cutting them off for those lepers. It was a brave thing to go back to the people who had mistreated them, who had ignored them and despised them. But friends, those lepers went back 
because they felt that upon them rested the duty of saving Samaria and to delay even till the sun again reddened the morning sky would be to sacrifice life. To keep their secret for just 24 hours might mean that hundreds back home might die of starvation within the walls of Samaria. And this brings me to another point. My friends, the divine discontentment of heaven, when we catch it, when we feel it, it will stir us to action for the world around us. Doing nothing is not an option for us. We get one chance at life. This is it. You and I were made for a mission. Oh, we have to do that again. You and I were made for a mission. The Great Commission. And notice it's the Great Commission. When we go, we do not go alone. God is with us. It's time you and I felt discontent, the divine discontentment of heaven burning in our hearts over our own spiritual lethargy and over the salvation of the lost and starving souls around us. GYC, that's you, I want to charge you this morning to be discontent. Be discontent with your devotions until your devotional life draws you into greater devotion to Jesus. Be discontent with your prayer life until your prayers are red hot with sincerity and total surrender. Let us be discontent until, like Moody, we have shared the everlasting gospel of Jesus either by word or deed with someone every day. Let us be discontent until our churches are active centers of soul winning and evangelism. And if you must gossip, gossip the gospel. Let us be discontent until our board meetings are busy not with deciding the color of the carpet, but with the prayerful development of plans for the urgent and strategic sharing of the gospel with the perishing world around us. Let us be discontent until our all on the altar of sacrifice is laid and our hearts does the Holy Spirit have full control over. Oscar Schindler was a member of the Nazi party, and he is responsible for saving over 1,100 Jews in Poland during the Holocaust. Amazing story. More than 6,000 people are today alive in Europe, the United States, and Israel as a result of what he did. When Germany, when Germany finally surrendered, Schindler knew that he was a wanted man for using the Jews as slave laborers. And so there is a film that portrays his story and his life. And at the end of the film, there is a powerful scene, and I want to relate it to you right now. In the last scene of this film, Schindler is surrounded by the thousand, a thousand Jews whom he has saved by uh, having them work for him. And his accountant turned friend, Ishtak Stern, I hope I said that right, he gives Schindler a gold ring. And on that ring is an inscription which Stern translates for him. And he says this, it's Hebrew from the Talmud. It says, whoever saves one life saves the world entire. And Schindler is deeply moved by this gift and by all those that surround him who are thanking him for what he has done for them. He says, I could have got more out. I could have got more. Stern reassures him, it's okay, Oscar, there are 1,100 people alive because of you. 
He says, if I'd made more money, I threw so much away. If I have made more money, you have no idea. I did, I just didn't do enough. And he is weeping again. Stern says, you did so much, it's okay. Schindler laments, this car, why did I keep this car? There are 10 people right here, 10 people right here. He takes off his Nazi badge, it's a lapel, and it was made of gold. He says, this is gold. Two more people right here, at least two, maybe one. They would have given me at least one more person. I could have saved one more person. My friends, Jesus is coming soon. And when he comes, he's going to split open that eastern sky. He's going to come with all the holy angels of heaven. And on that day when every eye will see him, it won't matter how much money we have in the bank. It won't matter what car we drove. It won't matter even how many GYCs we went to. The only thing that will matter is whether or not we have been faithful to Jesus and faithful to his cause and sharing the gospel. Because friends, if we don't share, who will? We've got to tell others about Jesus. I believe that God is going to move in a mighty way through his church in the very near future. I believe that the greatest days of this great Advent movement are just in front of us. God is going to pour out his spirit with Pentecostal power, latter rain power, and friends, God's people are gonna rise up and this world will be impacted with the love and the light of God with his truth and with his glory and the work will be finished. And in the same way that God took care of the enemy that surrounded Samaria, God will take care of the battle as well. The battle is not ours, it is God's, but we must take care of the good news. We must take that good news to our king's household because the king's household is in every kindred, nation, tribe, tongue, and people. They're in Australia, they're in New Zealand, they're in Mexico, they're in Peru, they're in the jungle villages of India, they're in the teeming millions of China, they're in the Middle East, as we've heard on Sabbath. Friends, they're everywhere. They're in the islands of the sea and they are waiting for someone to come and share the gospel with them, someone to come and bring the bread of life to them so that their heart hunger can be satisfied. And friends, we have it. How can we sit here and do nothing? This is the day of good news. Amen? This is the day of good news. And God's heart is aching. It is longing, it is yearning to feed a hungry world through us with the bread of life. I want you to know that as I speak these words, that I feel like I am preaching to myself. As I look at my own life, I am appalled at the indifference that I showed to a perishing world around me. And today, I want to commit to change. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.